church, can we just give the Lord a hand? Amen. I could listen to that last song a hundred billion more times. Um, just when you start looking at the words from creation until the death of Jesus, but on a hill he created, abandoned in darkness to die. And then he speaks and a hundred billion what, failures disappear. I mean, that's what God has done for us. And uh, I pray that knowing that, we can dive in this morning a little bit better uh, understanding this idea of proximate. If you haven't been here uh, the last couple of weeks, perhaps maybe you're a first-time guest with us, we're grateful that you've taken the time to be with us. Uh, we have been diving into this idea of proximate, and uh, it, it almost feels like it's not a Christmas series uh, because you're here and you think, okay, we're, in, we're encouraged to get proximate, as we talked about two weeks ago, to our weaknesses, to our failures, to the very things that uh, in our life, we go, God, I wish, I beg, I plead that you would take this away from me. I wish that you would do something with me other than what I have left for myself. And yet we see Paul, he wanted the same thing on some sort of uh, ailment or some sort of problem, challenge, infirmity, whatever you'd like to call it in his life in 2 Corinthians 12. And he pleaded with the Lord three times, God, would you remove it? And the Lord said, no, because in your weakness, I am strong. And we just encourage you to draw near to the weaknesses that you have in your life. And the reason why is, is because when you and I are broken, we can get proximate in our brokenness. We can get real with other people. We can share uh, where we lack and where God is good in our lives. And I'll tell you, the person that does not impress me in here is the person who seemed to have it all together when you walked in this morning. That doesn't impress me at all. And the reason why is because that's not what God wants. What God wants is the broken, fragmented, frail person who goes, my life is in complete shambles, but because of God's grace and his goodness in my life, I have been healed, I have been set free, and somehow I know he wants to use me. And that right there is a person that understands what God is doing in our lives. And I'll tell you, though, when we don't embrace our weaknesses, then what we tend to do is we tend to fear those who look superior to us. We, we push people away because they, they bring fear into our lives. We think that they're either above us, whether it be spiritually or uh, financially or any other way. Maybe it's intellectually. We go, I don't want them in my life because I fear what they might do. They may expose greater weaknesses in me. And so we don't, we don't want to be around them. At the same time, what oftentimes we do, and at least I did early on in my life, is I seem to make uh, you the butt of my jokes if you were less than me or if I could find some sort of flaw in you. That would expose you. If I could laugh at your expense, it always made me feel better about myself. And I know that's probably true of most of us in here, that that's who we are. But God goes, no, draw near to your weakness. Understand that I am strong on your behalf. And when we begin to look at our weaknesses, when we begin to realize that God is this incredible creation that he breathed the breath into. And as he breathes breath into it, we don't have the right to decide who it is that God wants to redeem or who he doesn't. And so as we realize that it is his creation, we look around planet Earth and we go, man, why is it that because of what I believe and because of what I think or because of what people look like or because of what they say or because they're a Democrat or Republican or because they're a Libertarian or whatever it is, I can't be their friend. And so last week we just talked about in our culture, because of the fact that we don't like to embrace our weaknesses and we see other strengths, et cetera, we've created the kind of this us versus them mentality. And it exists in lots of different ways. But what if we begin to do what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 5 and break down some of those barriers? What if we began to look at people not as enemies, 
Or what if we begin to pray for people? What if we begin to seek to understand those who aren't like us? To have conversations. And just this last week, I've heard two or three different conversations of people who are reaching out in ways, getting proximate to people who aren't like them. I've heard of people who are, are looking to find uh, ways to get involved in another church uh, that in our community that's not like us. Just to go, hey, what would it look like if I just went and worshiped with you? I've heard of a couple who did that. Went to an entirely different church just to worship with them. Just to go, you know what, I, I just want to see what... God's doing it in other places. I heard about a gentleman who went way beyond his own walls to, to reach out to a family in need, picked him up at a gas station, and has been ministering him for the last several weeks. I heard about another guy who I spoke of yesterday. It was a black man who spoke of another guy, picked him up on the side of the road, ended up ministering him on the way. And I'm like, that's what it looks like to be the church and to begin to embrace these different things in our culture. And I'll tell you, that, I think, is what it looks like to draw near. And so today, I want to ask you this question. Are you drawing near, or do you happen to be somewhat on an island by yourself? Are you isolated? And I want to give you a picture of this guy who I think is isolated, and I want you to just kind of walk through the narrative with me because I think it's such a rich narrative. And then I want to show you who this man is and what he represents. And, and I think that will be life-changing in and of itself. But after you see that, I also want maybe us to see us in this text. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We'd love to bless you with one as you leave. Matter of fact, uh, we want to just go ahead and apologize for this place being under construction. Seems like we've been there for a year. Uh, but as you walk out the front doors of our building, uh, there's a new lobby area. But just before you reach the new lobby, there's a little counter on the right-hand side. There will be a volunteer there. If you're a first-time guest, hand them that communication card. They'd love to bless your family with free T-shirts. If you're not a new guest or you just don't have a Bible in here, we'd love to bless you with a Bible that you could use and uh, be proud of and have in your home to read. And so take advantage of that. If you don't have one right now, that's okay. Don't wor worry about running out and getting it right now. We'll put it for you up on the screen. So <clears throat> John chapter 5, and uh, we'll, we'll dive in. <clears throat> Verse 1, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to, to be on his way to Jerusalem, and it happens to be the time of a feast. Now, we don't know exactly what feast it is. There's no way to know for sure, uh, but it's likely one of two. It's either Purim or possibly Passover. Now, you're going to see in John, the Passover is going to be mentioned multiple times. In chapter 2, uh, verse 13 and 23, you're going to see it again in, in uh, John chapter 6, verse 4, again in John chapter 12. And so if this happens to be Passover, then it's going to put Jesus' ministry at about three and a half years. I happen to be of the belief that it is the Passover, but there's no no way to prove it. The only reason I think that it is is because the word feast typically would represent Passover. And so in, this, in, in the original language, that word feast is kind of the indication that that might be what it is. Either way, we don't know what it is. We just know that John's about to give us an incredible sign. And what John was good about is he wanted to give us these simeons, these signs that Jesus uh, did in the works of, of his ministry. And, G, and John even tells at the very end of the book, he goes, the reason that I wrote to you the way that I did in this narrative is simply that you would see the signs of God and that you would believe in him. That's it. And so what we see here is John's just giving us an indication of what Jesus did so that you might see and believe. Come and see is the idea. In verse 2, it says, Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, there was a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. So what we know is that there's a place of refuge and it was at this sheep gate, this pool of Bethesda. Now, Bethesda simply means the house of mercy. And what you know is, is that there were people who gathered there. Matter of fact, in verse 3, you're going to see who gathered there. It says, in these, meaning this place where there's a roof colonnade, a covering, 
There laid uh, a multitude of invalids. There were blind people, lame people, and paralyzed people. Uh, there were a multitude of people who had weaknesses, who had ailments, uh, who, for a variety of reasons, gathered to this place. Now, you would think that maybe they gathered here because in some way they had community together. I mean, they had a handful of things that were, were in common, right? They, their lives weren't together. They had ailments, some uh, fractions, some things in their life that they obviously gathered to this place for a reason. And so the question is, is why? Well, obviously, it's a place called the house of mercy. But the question is, too, is there something else to offer? Did they just find consolation in gathering with other like-minded people? Was it that there was a place of refuge? Obviously, what we know in terms of just the scriptures, and if you just dive into the text a little bit, you'd know that this is a place that kept them from inclement weather. It was a place where they could find some warmth and some sort of comfort in all of their afflictions. But as you look at it, too, you're going to see this one man in particular. Now, that's in verse 5. Now, you may look and you go, okay, wait a second. Hold on. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, if you don't have a verse 4 in your Bible, like I do, you got to go, well, why is that? Like, why, is there no, so why is there no verse 4? And so in verse 4, what you're going to see is if you happen to have it in your Bible, then you need to get rid of that copy. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What you have is, is you have, you have a dispute among commentators, okay? And so in verse 4, you're going to see kind of this idea of an angel that would dip down and stir the waters. The very first ones to get into the water would be made well. Now, the reason that a lot of commentators and a lot of people leave that out, as does my Bible, is because they don't agree that verse 4 was in the original manuscripts. So matter of fact, in the early original manuscripts, if you were to go back to the earliest copies back in the first century AD, what you would notice is that there was no verse 4. It went from verses 3 and 4. In the original language, there weren't all the verses. and the, It wasn't done the way that you have your Bible now. So that was done for our uh, ability to, to kind of maneuver through the Bible faster, okay? But verse 4 was not in the original manuscripts. As a matter of fact, in the second century AD, there's a guy named Tertullian, and he was most likely the one that added it. And so the reason it's left out is because most people would say, I, we don't really think that it was a part of the original manuscripts. Now, the reason that Tertullian most likely added it is to explain away verse 7, which we'll see here in just a second, okay? So if you do have it in your Bible, just know that it's not in the original manuscripts. Not a huge deal, but just realize that, okay? Then you get to verse 5. So there at this place where you have the sheep gate pool in Jerusalem, a pool of Bethesda, lame, mute, paralyzed people gather there, there was one man who was an invalid, and he had been that way for 38 years. And then verse 6 says, And when Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And it's a really excellent question. Jesus goes, Do you want to be healed? And I know that the natural response for a guy who's been an invalid for 38 years, you would say, Well, of course. Absolutely, I want to be healed. I mean, that would be what your initial thought is, right? 38 years of being an invalid, and you go, absolutely. And I love his response because he jumps up and down and says, yes, Jesus, let's, let's be healed. Now, that's not his response at all. Look at his response. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. It takes you back to the verse 4. There seemed to be some sort of common belief that once a year there would be something, an angel possibly, that would dip down into the pool of Bethesda and stir the waters. The first one that could get there would be healed. 
Well, this guy has Jesus standing in front of him, and Jesus asks the question, the creator of the world, according to Colossians 1, the one who can recreate water and turn it into wine, John 2, this sign that he had given us already. This guy asks this invalid, do you want to be healed? And his response is, I don't have anybody to get me to the pool. Huh? And then he gives an excuse. While, while I'm going, another one steps down before me. So Jesus asked this guy, do you want to be healed of your infirmity? Do you want to be healed of being an invalid in which you've been this way for quite some time? And the guy says, I don't have anybody to get me to the pool fast enough. And he just gives this excuse right away. I mean, he doesn't say an emphatic yes. He doesn't really answer any part of the question other than, I don't have anybody to get me there. Now you go, well, why does that make it such a good question that Jesus asked that? And here's why. I think Jesus is trying to, he's trying to invoke the will of this man. Now I want you to think about it for just a second. There are a handful of things that maybe you've been praying for for a couple of months. And, and right now it's not on the top priority of your prayer list. And you're like, I, I just don't see it coming to pass. I mean, I've been praying for a couple of months and it just doesn't seem to be happening. I mean, there are a couple of you that you're in here and you've been praying for something to happen and it's been a couple of years and you go, I, I, I just don't have the fervency. I, I don't continue to, to ask and seek and knock with the intention that maybe I should to see God do something big because you just in some ways have invoked some sort of doubt in your mind that God really wants to do that. I mean, think about it for just a second. When Paul pleads with the Lord three times in 2 Corinthians 12 to take away his infirmity, I mean, he, he pleads three times, and then, it, and then he just kind of settles with, I think this is what God wants me to have in my life so that he gets glory. So you have this really catch-22, don't you? I mean, it's almost like a double-edged sword in some ways. I mean, in one way, you go, I ought to have faith to see God heal and move in a mighty way. At the same time, if he doesn't move in a mighty way, then i got to be okay and content with just being the way I am, embracing my weakness and allowing God to be strong on my behalf. Like, do you see that? Like, that's, that's a pretty big thing to kind of grapple with. Well, this guy has been an invalid for 38 years. Perhaps maybe he's prayed, and after 10 years of praying, he goes, I, I just think I'm going to be here for a while. But think about things like this. I mean, in your marriage, how many, how many times have you been praying for your husband who doesn't know the Lord just to come to, to know the Lord? Like, and, and at what point do you just stop praying? Do you just go, I just don't see God doing it. And, and I've, I've prayed, and I've been praying for five years. Or maybe you say, I've been praying for ten years. Or maybe you've got a son or a daughter who has run from the Lord, and you're praying they would come back. Maybe you're afflicted with some sort of uh, diagnosis, and you're praying, you're pleading, God, would you just take it away? But at what point do you just go, God, maybe this is just, this is just my lot in life? And, and if you can imagine being this guy who's been an invalid for 38 years, could you fault him honestly for just kind of giving up after a a couple of decades and just going, maybe this is my lot in life. I mean, just in the gut-wrenching, honest part of your life, I mean, how fervently do you pray for things? I mean, after a couple of months, it's like, I guess I'm just not going to pray for it anymore. And so God, through Jesus, appeals to the will of this man. He goes, do you want to be healed? And I'm not sure this man wanted to be healed. And I think it's a question you have to ask yourself. Matter of fact, we bring this up all the time in our regeneration ministry. And about step four, after we've talked about trust, we're doing an inventory with all our participants. One of the questions we'll ask people a lot is, do you really want to be healed? And you would think that the natural inclination of a man or a woman would be, yes, absolutely, I want to be healed. But the question is, is does everybody really want the healing that God provides? And the answer is, I don't think so. I don't think everybody wants to be set free of their afflictions the way that you and I maybe think they should. 
And the question that you have to ask yourself is why? And I think we'll answer it here in just a second. If you look at Jesus, though, after this man says, hey, there's nobody to put me in. Everybody always beats me down in the water. Jesus, he does something anyway. I mean, looking at this man's will, he, he just says, get up, take your bed, and walk. Go. Get up and get going. And at once, the man was healed. And he took his bed and he walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Now, that's pretty interesting. Jesus, even though he, he doesn't see a real excitement, the guy doesn't answer the question at all, really. He goes, hey, go and be healed. Walk. And the guy walks. And if you'll notice what he does next, he's going he's gonna to run into a couple of guys. In verse 10, it says, now the Jews, speaking of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those leaders in the prominent areas of the Jewish life and culture, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But then this, the paralytic answered them, the man who healed me, the man that said to me, he, ta- he said take up the bed and walk. So what he does is he makes another excuse. He goes, I didn't do this on a Sabbath. Like, are you, like, are you upset with me? Because I, I mean, I didn't tell myself get up and walk. I mean, another guy told me to get up and walk. And so I got up and I walked. And I thought it was a little surprising because after 38 years of not being able to walk, he says get up and walk. And I get up and walk. And I'm like, why are you faulting me? I mean, fault him. That's a that's the idea that this guy goes. He goes, I didn't do this. Somebody else did this to me. And so they go, well, who is this? That man that said to you, take up your bed and walk. You might not find this interesting, but in verse 13, I do. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Hold on just a second. There is a guy who just healed you of a paralysis in which you've held for 38 years and you didn't even get his name? I mean, you didn't bother to go, hey, by the way, dude, I don't know what you just did to me, but can I get a name? Like, can I have your business card? I mean, something? No, nothing. No, it was almost just like Jesus said, get up and walk. The guy walks. He runs into this group of guys, and this group of guys they don't celebrate with him, which kind of brings me to a point that I made last week. Listen to me. When you don't understand something, you become either a learner or you become a critic. And I want you to notice what happens with these guys. These, these guys who are the chief leaders in Judaism, these leaders in the area and prominence in this Jewish culture, they don't say, hey, that's incredible that you've been healed. They don't say, hey, how did this happen? I've seen you lame and a paralytic for 38 years. I remember all the times that you've begged me. I can remember all the times that you beat around that little tin cup asking for money. How in the world did you get up and walk? They don't ask that. They don't ask any good questions, by the way. All they do is because they don't understand and they don't agree, they become critical right away. And what is their response? Why did this happen on the Sabbath? I mean, think about it. I think that's the classic case of the critic, of the church person that's critical, of the business person that's critical, of the racist that's critical, whatever it is. Instead of seeking to understand something and asking a couple of good questions, you just make a really foolish statement. And these guys, because they were zealous for God, say, what in the world were you doing on the Sabbath? And the guy, I love his response, right? Because he seems to really be uh, healed by Jesus, right? He goes, I didn't do it. He did it. I don't even know his name. And then they say, well, it's not lawful. You shouldn't have done this today. 
I mean, could, could this not have waited till tomorrow? I mean, it's been 38 years. Why do you have to do it today? Why not just do it tomorrow? Now, let me ask you a question. Do you know those people in your life? I mean, you just have like this really incredible news you're excited about, and you share it, and it's just like, well, why did you have to do it that way? Well, why did it have to be on this day? Well, what am I going to get out of it? Well, it's pretty inconvenient for me. I mean, that's these guys. These guys created an us versus them scenario right away. And here's what's interesting. Jesus didn't actually break a Sabbath law. What he did was break the interpretation of the law in their own mind, which is what you should not work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus didn't classify his healing as a work. He just, he just saw it as a healing, a, a transformation. And, and quite honestly, I don't think Jesus cared how they classified it because he's God and he can do as he pleases. But what's interesting is, is their response. Now, afterward, Jesus found this guy in verse 14, and he found him in the temple, and he said to him, see, you are well. And he uses this perfect tense word, well, meaning that it's done. Like, you'll never go back and be a paralytic again. You are healed once and for all, forevermore. And then he encourages him something. He says, now go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Got it? He goes, okay, now go away. And he goes, and don't return as a dog returns to his vomit. Go away and be healed. Don't continue to sin that grace may increase. Go and see God do a transforming work in your life. See God's grace and his mercy and his healing, his provision, and go and enjoy that. That's what he's saying. And he goes, and don't do this so that you don't have another infirmity. And so the idea almost gives you this impression that maybe this guy was a paralytic because God is trying to teach him something in his own sin. That he's paralyzed and where he is because of, of some choices that he's made to honor himself. And so God seems to have paralyzed him and then set him free. That's kind of the indication you have. And he goes, and, hey, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And then the man, man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, this is another incredible thing if you just think about it for just a second. The one thing the guy had on his agenda was to go tell the people who were trying to kill Jesus that I've got his name. Hey, I got his business card. His name's Jesus. Like, that's it. I mean, he doesn't go into another region and share the message of hope. He doesn't seem to go to his neighbors. It seems that he has this sphere of man, these people that he believes are superior to him, and he thinks the one piece of information they need is this guy's name. And so when I run into him, he gives me an indication to do something. He says, go and sin no more. And what did the guy hear? Go sin no more. Grace and peace to you. Go live in righteousness. I don't think so. I mean, the guy says, hey, tell me your name. Jesus. Oh, awesome. And then he goes and he tells the guys Jesus' name. Now, you may be here and you may go, I, I don't understand this narrative. I, I don't get this. Why would he do this? Because then you see what happens. These zealous men, these Judaizers who are zealous for God, they get really angry. And then this is why the Jews, verse 16, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father's working until now, and I am working. So Jesus goes, I don't care what you say. You can't limit God and his power, and I am God, and God is working his power through me. And that's his response, and he kind of ends it. And he goes on, and you get a, another verse in, in uh, verse 18. But Jesus is basically just saying, look, I can do as I please. Now, here's what's interesting to me 
is why is this man the center of attention? Think about it for just a second, okay? You have this pool of Bethesda at the sheep gate in the center of Jerusalem. You've got this, this roof colonnade in which there seems to be five pillars. And you've got all these people sitting around, invalids, lame, mute, blind, lots and lots of people who need help. And Jesus approaches this one man who happens to be a paralytic for 38 years. And my question is, is God, why did you choose this man? And it's, an, it's a question that's intrigued me because the guy doesn't seem to be overly excited that he's going to have an offer to be healed. I mean, it's not like you see others. Like you see other places in the scriptures, like a, a garrison demoniac who, who Jesus heals, cast out these demons, and then he goes and he goes, let me go with you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, I want you to stay here. And then he does this incredible work. Like, you don't get this from the guy in John 5. John 5 doesn't say, hey, let me go with you. He doesn't say, hey, let me go share the gospel. I mean, all he does is embrace some sort of miraculous divine healing, and then he goes and he tells the Pharisees his name. He seems less than thrilled to have met the God of the universe. And so it's an intriguing thing. I go, why? Like, why is this narrative? And so I, I heard something years ago that kind of challenged my thoughts on this text, and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to finally dive into it. And so this week, I started just piling into the numbers. I wanted to see the numbers. And as I started diving into the numbers, I noticed something that's really incredible in the Old Testament. And it reminded me who this man really is. And I think that this is the correct interpretation, although I can't prove it with all certainty. But I don't think this man and this narrative is near as much about him as it is about someone else. I think it's a picture of a nation. And here's why. The reason the picture of a nation is this. You have this people called Israel that God said, I'm going to save, and I'm going to bring them out of slavery, and then I'm going to use them, and out of that nation is going to become a man. That man's going to be a Messiah, and he's going to not just save a people, but he's going to save the world. He's going to get proximate to people who aren't like him, who have differences, who aren't like the Jews, who they think that the gospel should go to, the good news of Jesus. He goes, no, I'm going to go and get proxy to people. But in that, he wanted us to see who the people thought Jesus should be. And they seem to be a people that are lame and who are confused. Matter of fact, let me explain it to you this way. When God chose the people of Israel... It wasn't long after he chose them that they ended up in captivity with the Egyptians for 400 years. And finally, after Moses goes to Pharaoh a multitude of times in a period of about a month, finally God uh, gets Pharaoh's attention and he lets the people go after 400 years of, of slavery. And so they go. And once they go, it takes them 24 days to cross the Red Sea. And once they cross the Red Sea, it's going to take them another seven days, about a week to get into the desert of sin. And then after that, they're going to go and they're going to arrive at Mount Sinai, which takes them another 16 days. So basically, about 48 days in, they're at Sinai, and God wants to do something there. He wants to impart the law to them. Now, Moses goes to the mountain. He's going to be there for about 90 to 100 days. He's going to be up there getting the law, and it happens to be on tablets of stone, right? Y'all remember that? The first time uh, he gets angry because he comes down, his brother Aaron's made the golden calf, he breaks him, has to go back up. And so you've got this whole time where he's going up. 
Meanwhile, after he comes down, the Jewish people are going to spend about 200 days gathering things for the, the building of the tabernacle. And it's going to be a year period of real great production. And they're going to be productive in what they're doing for God. And then God's going to go, listen, I've got a land for you. I promised it to your father Abraham, and now it's here. Let's go get it. And they're going to send out some, some uh, spies, one from the nations, uh, or one from each of the tribes. You've got Joshua and Caleb. You've got ten others in which we'll never name your child after because you're not impressed. Why? Because they get there, they're fearful, they're afraid of the giants living in the land, and they say, no, we can't go. And Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. Let's go get it. And they decide we're not going to do that. And listen to me. They are now going to camp in this wilderness period, not for 40 years, but for 13,590 days, which is just shy of 38 years. 38 years of lame, wandering, blindness in the wilderness. God says, this is my purpose. This is my plan for you. And they go, no, we're afraid. No, we want to do it our way. And so guess what? There is a nation that they are lame ducks They are sitting there in obstinance against a good God. They don't want his purpose. They don't want his plan. They want to do what he wants. And so God says, if that's what you want, I'll leave you here. And you can stand right here in the wilderness at the door of Kadesh Barnea, and you can stay here as long as you like. And for 38 years, he leaves them there as a lame, paralyzed people who were obstinate against God. Now let me just fast forward real quickly to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is not about a paralytic man. It's about the people who question Jesus and want to kill him because he's doing work on the Sabbath. It is a blind, mute, paralyzed people. God comes down. He wants to see it close. John 1 says he dwells among them, yet they do not recognize him. They do not want God getting proximate to them. And because God's not willing to get proximate to them, they're not willing to get proximate to other people. And so you go, well, what in the world are they searching after? If they don't want God, what do they want? They want five stone colonnades. They want refuge under the law. Where do these men gather? The house of mercy, a pillar of five stone colonnades. You know what those are? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Five stones. They go, this is where salvation is found. And Jesus goes, no, salvation is not found in the the law. It is found in me. I want to set you free. I am telling you, Israel, get up and walk. Go and sin no more. And they want nothing to do with it. Their eyes are darkened. Their hearts are not illumined. And Jesus goes, do you want to be healed? And the answer is, no, we really don't want to be healed. We want to kind of do our own thing. We want to write our script. We want to believe what we want to believe. Don't tell us to get proximate to anybody. Don't tell us to pray for our enemies. We're going to curse those who curse us. We're going to to blot out the transgressions of those who what? Do transgressions to us. Like, we're, we're after people. Like, no, don't tell us to do that. And we'll kill you if you try to get in our way. And what do they do? Do you see the idea here? In some ways, Jesus, obviously, because he's God, is a genius. And he gives this incredible picture to this people, this nation, right in front of them, and they still miss it. He goes, it's not enough for me to come and dwell among you. What if I just told you that I'm here to set you free? But then it brings up another question. 
if this is about a nation, a people who don't want God to get proximate to them because they don't want to get proximate to other people and their differences, they don't want to see their weaknesses, they don't want to see where the law exposes them as people, they don't want to get close to their enemies, they don't want to have anything to do with Samaria, they don't want to have anything to do with the Moabites or anybody else around their camp. All they want is to just have their holy huddle, we're the Jews, we have God on lockdown, and we're his people. If that's all he got there, then the question is, is why are they so afraid to have healing? And I think there's a couple of things you've got to think about. First of all, if you get healed, if this guy says, yeah, bring healing, if the nation of Israel says bring healing, that means they have to get out of their comfortable zone. It means that they actually have to do something different. I mean, that's Paul. Paul was very comfortable, and then he goes, I, I killed Stephen or was there. I persecuted Christians in my ignorance. He goes, I thought I was doing right as a zealous man for God, but then I revealed, it was revealed to me that once I got out of my comfort zone, out of my way of thinking, then I realized that God was doing work there. And it, it was a fairly uncomfortable to get out of that. Do you realize how comfortable it can be? Even to be miserable for 38 years, how you can just get used to that lifestyle? I mean, he, he was... He was a paralytic for 38 years. I mean, that's what he just came to know. And even though the infirmities were great, he was okay with just being comfortable in all of that weakness. And he goes, I I don't need out of that. That's going to get me out of my comfort zone. As one theologian says, as bad as his current situation was, at least he was familiar with it. And so you got to get out of your comfort zone if you want healing. The second thing, though, you look at that is that they could never play the blame game again. See, when you, when you don't get healed, it can always be someone else's fault. Do you remember the guy's response? Jesus goes, do you want to be healed? And he goes, yeah, absolutely, I want to be healed. No, that wasn't his response. What did he say? He goes, no, I can never get to the water first. Nobody will get me there first. Which brings up a couple of questions to me. Number one, like, if you're living in a community of people on this, this pillar of five colonnades, and there's literally probably hundreds of people there who are living in their beggar state, in, in their infirmities, you're telling me that you don't have a buddy that will help you get somewhere? It just shows you the selfishness of where they were. They were willing to stay right where they were because it could always be someone else's fault. Now, let me ask you a question. In your recovery, in your own thinking, how many times is it always someone else's fault that you never move forward? Man, I would love for my marriage to move forward, but she just won't get on board. Man, I would love to be... I would love to be healed of this addictive pattern, but, man, I just don't think it's going away. It's been with me for 38 years. I mean, how many times do we blame someone else playing the victim? I mean, you think about it for just a second. I mean, an Eastern beggar will leave, uh, will leave a good living behind real quickly if he's healed. I mean, if, as long as he sits on that five-stone colonnade begging and, and rattling that tin cup, guess what? He has a living. But as soon as he's healed, guess what? He can no longer make excuses, and it brings up point three. It means he's got to get to work. It it means that he's got to have some movement. As he has movement, it means it requires effort. See, God doesn't reach down just to heal you so that you would stay where you were. Matter of fact, I love that Max Lucado, many years ago, he wrote a book, and he just says, God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Like when God reaches down and he touches you and he does a divine work in your life, he doesn't do it so that you'll be comfortable where you are. He does it so you'll get out of your comfort zone, so that you'll quit making excuses as to why you can't take a step forward, and then you'll get to work, that you'll get some effort going, that you'll get in community, that you'll begin to share your weaknesses, that you'll begin to embrace who it is that God's made you to be, and you'll begin to move forward 
in spite of your infirmity, in spite of how long you've lost in your life. I love the fact that I've got a friend. He goes, I always ask the question, why 42 years in my sin and my infirmities? But he goes, but I'm so thankful that once God finally showed me that at least I was 42, I had so many years ahead of me. I mean, the guy could easily stay right there and go, man, 38 years of my life has been lost to this infirmity. But guess what? It doesn't matter. You've been healed. Get your mat, get up and go. And as you've been healed in that, then, hey, press on for the cause of the gospel, the good news. Quit making excuses. Get some effort behind you and move forward. Why? Because when you do that, you get to see God at work, and you don't limit his power anymore. If you stay right where you are, if this nation, if this man stays right where they are, and the nation of Israel would, guess what? It can always be someone else's fault. They don't have to do anything different than they've always done. And they can go, God, I don't know what you've done. You just don't seem to show up anymore. And God's saying, no, 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 I I came near. I mean, what, what more would you want than what I've given you? I asked you, do you want to be healed? But the answer is, no, you didn't want to be healed. And then it just begs the question, not to the nation of Israel, but to you and me. If God came near to get proximate to us so that we would embrace who it is that he's made us to be, so that we would get proximate to other people, he wants to heal you of your infirmity. And listen, your greatest infirmity is not cancer. It's not a diagnosis. It's not a job loss. It's not that your, your house is under a remodel and you don't have a kitchen. That's not your greatest infirmity. Your greatest infirmity is that you are a sinner and you are destined to die in separation from God for all of eternity. That's your infirmity. And then God said, I see fit to bring someone near to you to set the captives free. And when he sets you free, he does so so that you'll no longer blame other people for your sin patterns. So that he will set you free to live a new life in Christ. That you would be a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The idea is that he sets you free not so that you run back as this man did to the Jews as a dog returns to his vomit. He goes, no, I have come that you would get your mat and that you would walk. And so my question is, is this, are you walking and embracing the healing that God has for you? And if you are, then I want you to be very clear on something. If you are walking in the fullness and the grace and the the goodness of the deity of Jesus, then you love your enemies. And you pray for those who persecute you. And you realize that because God has healed you of your greatest infirmity, that it doesn't matter who it is that's around you, whether they be a libertarian, whether they be a Jew, whether they be a black man, a brown man, a white man, whether it be a prostitute, whether it be a woman who has been beaten and rejected, that we all should take time and draw near because there was a God who drew near to us. And because he got proximate, because he healed you, you should live in that and embrace that. I'll tell you, if you've never been healed of your greatest need, you'll never know that that's what God wants you to share with someone else. 
But I want you to also understand that if you have a difficult time sharing the hope of Jesus in this world and what he's done for you, then it may be a reflection that you've never been healed. Because I don't see how a man who's been healed doesn't go and shout it to the mountain. I mean, honestly, how does God create a heal, abandoned in darkness to die, so that at the very words he would speak that all your failures would disappear? And then you never tell anybody about it. And that you don't raise your hands and shout to the rooftops. That you don't sing for joy of what God has done. Do you understand what it looks like to be healed? You have to ask yourself, am I a picture of that nation Israel who's rejected God and who's doing it my own way? Or or am I going to be a a picture of a man that Jesus says, get up and walk, and I go, and I quit making excuses. I get out of my comfort zone, and I get proximate to God and to others, and I embrace this message of hope and reconciliation the world so desperately needs to hear. In a time of great division, what if you and I are the people who are bringing this world back together? That's the goal. And I pray that you know that that's the only, only reason this church exists, is to bring healing and brokenness. I can promise you that this church is not here to make you comfortable. It is not here to appease you. It is here to make God famous throughout the earth. And God, if you have to make me uncomfortable, or God, if you have to afflict me with an infirmity, then God, you so be it. You ruin my life for the sake of your gain and for your glory. And that's how I hope we always live our lives. Let me pray for you. God, we love you and we thank you for the message of hope, reconciliation. We thank you, God, that you want to use us broken people. Oh, God, help us to realize that this whole thing, this thing, the good news, the gospel, your work in the church, making us your hands and your feet is not nearly much about us as it is you. And God, just forgive us about all the times we make it about us. And God, would you just help us to embrace the healing you so desperately want to give us? And God, for the person in this room right now that you want to reach down and set them free, you want to give them new life in Christ, you want to give them light in the midst of all their darkness and all their chaos and all their fears, God, help them, Lord, to not say no because they're unwilling to embrace something different. God, help them to move out of their comfort zone. Lord, help us, God, in this room to move out of the pathway of making excuses. Lord, playing the blame game and always being someone else's fault. God, you are coming near to us. You want to change us from the inside out. And I pray, God, we would embrace that because the message of hope doesn't start uh, merely end with us, but it starts with us. God, you want to move in us, through us, and out of us to this world who desperately needs light in the midst of this dark and broken world that we live in. So, God, would you help us? We love you, and we thank you that in the midst of our paralysis and our sin-sick, filled life, you set us free. And we thank you, Lord, that's Jesus' primary purpose, was to set the captives free. So God, help us to embrace that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.